Hello, this is Upendo Books. Thank you for joining us for the first 10 pages. Today, we'll be reading from Barack Obama's Dreams from My Father, a story of race and inheritance. Chapter 1. A few months after my 21st birthday, a stranger called to give me the news. I was living in New York at the time, on 94th between 2nd and 1st, part of that unnamed shifting border between East Harlem and the rest of Manhattan. It was an uninviting block, treeless and barren, lined with suit-colored walk-ups and that cast heavy shadows on most of the day. The apartment was small, with slanting floors and irregular heat, and a buzzer downstairs that didn't work, so that visitors had to call ahead from a payphone at the corner gas station where a black Doberman the size of a wolf paced through the night in vigilant patrol, his jaws clamped around an empty beer bottle. None of this concerned me much, for I didn't get many visitors. I was impatient in those days, busy with work and realized unrealized plans, and prone to see other people as unnecessary distractions. It wasn't that I didn't appreciate company exactly. I enjoyed exchanging Spanish pleasantries with my mostly Puerto Rican neighbors, and on my way back from class I'd usually stop to talk to the boys who hung out on the stoop all summer long about the nicks or the gunshots they'd heard the night before. When the weather was good, my roommate and I might sit out on the fire escape to smoke cigarettes and study the dusk washing blue over the city or watch white people from the better neighborhoods nearby walk their dogs down our block to let their animals shit on our curbs. Scoop the poop, you bastards, my roommate would shout with impressive rage and we'd laugh at the faces of both master and beast, grim and unapologetic as they hunkered down to do the deed. I enjoyed such moments, but only in brief. If the talk began to wander or cross the border into familiarity, I would soon find reason to excuse myself. I'd grown too comfortable in my solitude, the safest place I knew. I remember there was an old man living next door who seemed to share my disposition. He lived alone, a not stooped figure who wore a heavy black overcoat and a misshapen fedora on those rare occasions when he left his apartment. Once in a while I'd run into him on his way back from the store and I would offer to carry his groceries up the long flight of stairs. He would look at me and shrug and we'd begin our ascent, stopping at each landing so that he could catch his breath. When he finally arrived at his apartment and carefully set the bags down on the floor, he would offer the courtly nod of acknowledgement before shuffling inside and closing the latch. Not a single word would pass between us, and not once did he ever thank me for my efforts. The old man's silence impressed me. I thought him a, a kindred spirit. Later, my roommate would find him crumpled up on the third floor landing, his eyes wide open, his limbs stiff and curled up like a baby's. A crowd gathered, a few of the women crossed themselves, and a smaller children whispered with excitement. Eventually, the paramedics arrived to take away the body, and the police let themselves into the old man's apartment. It was neat, almost empty, a chair, a desk, the faded portrait of a woman with heavy eyebrows, and a gentle smell set atop the mantelpiece. Somebody opened the refrigerator and found close to a thousand dollars in small bills rolled up inside wads of old newspaper and carefully arranged behind mayonnaise and pickle jars. The loneliness of the scene affected me. And for the briefest moment, I wished that I never learned the old man's name. Then, almost immediately, I regretted my desire. Along with his companion, grief, 
I felt as if an understanding had been broken between us, as if in that barren room, the old man was whispering an untold history, telling me things I preferred not to hear. It must have been a month or so later, on a cold, dreary November morning, the sun faint behind a gauze of clouds, that the other call came. I was in the middle of making myself breakfast with coffee on the stove and two eggs in the skillet when my roommate handed me the phone. The line was thick with static. Barry, Barry, is, is that you? Yeah, who is this? Yes, Barry, this is your Aunt Jane in Nairobi. Can you hear me? Uh, I'm sorry, who did you say you were? Aunt, Aunt Jane, listen, Barry, your father's dead. He is killed in a car accident. Hello, can you hear me? I say your father's dead, Barry. Please call your uncle in Boston and tell him. I can't talk now, okay? Barry, I'll try to call you again. That was all. The line cut off. And I sat down on the couch, smelling eggs burn in the kitchen, staring at cracks in the plaster, trying to measure my loss. At the time of his death, my father remained a myth to me, both more or less than a man. He had left Hawaii back in 1963, when I was only two years old, so that as a child I knew him only through the stories that my mother and grandparents told. They all had their favorites, each one seamless, burnished smooth, and repeated use. I can still picture Gramps leaning in his old stuffed chair after dinner, sipping whiskey and cleaning his teeth with a cell phone, cellophane from his cigarette pack, recounting the time my father almost threw a man off the Palau lookout because of a pipe. See, your mom and dad decided to take this friend of a sightseeing around the island. They drove up to the lookout and Barack was probably on the wrong side of the road the whole way over there. Your father was a terrible driver, my mother explains to me. He'd end up on the left side, the way the British drive, and if he said something, he'd just huff about silly American rules. Well, this particular time, they arrived in one piece, and they got out and stood on the railing to admire the view. And Barack, he was puffing away on this pipe that I'd given him for his birthday, pointing out all the sights with the stem like a sea captain. Your father was really proud of that pipe. My mother interrupts again. He often smokes it at night while he studied and sometimes look at Do you want to tell the story or are you going to let me finish? Sorry, Dad. Go ahead. Anyway, this poor fella is another African student, wasn't he? Fresh off the boat. This poor kid must have been impressed with the way Barack was holding forth with his pipe because he asked if he could give it a try. Your dad thought about it for a minute and finally agreed. As soon as the fella took out his first puff, he started coughing up a fit. Coughed so hard that the pipe spat out of his hand and dropped over the railing, a hundred feet down over the face of the cliff. Graham stops to take another nip from his flask before continuing. Well, now your dad was gracious enough to wait until the friend had stopped coughing before he told him to climb over the railing and bring back the pipe back. The man took one peek down this 90 degree incline and told Barack that he'd have to buy him a replacement. Quite sensibly, said Toot from the kitchen. We call my grandmother Toot Toot. Toot for short, it means grandparent in Hawaiian, where she decided to, on that day I was born, she was too young to be called Granny. Gramp scowls but decides to ignore her. But Barack was adamant about getting his pipe back because it was a gift and couldn't be replaced. So this fella took another look and shook his head again. And that's when your dad picked him clear off the ground and started dangling him over the railing. Gramps let out a hoot and gives his knee a jovial slap. As he laughs, I imagine myself looking up at my father, dark against the brilliant sun, the transgressor's arms flailing about as he held, was held aloft, a fearsome vision of justice. It wasn't really holding him over the railing, Dad, my mother says, looking to me with concern. 
but Gramps takes another sip of whiskey and plows forward. At this point, other people were starting to stare, and your mother was begging Barack to stop. I guess Barack's friend was just holding his breath and saying his prayers. Anyway, after a couple of minutes, your dad set the man back down on his feet, patted him on the back, and suggested, calm as you please, that they all go find themselves a beer. And don't you know, that's how your dad acted for the rest of the tour, like nothing happened. Of course, your mother was still pretty upset when they got home. In fact, she was barely talking to your dad. Barack wasn't helping matters any either, because when your mother's tired to tell us what happened, he just shook his head and started to laugh. Relax, Anna, he said to her. Your dad had this deep baritone, see, and this British accent. My grandfather tucks his chin into his neck at this point to capture the full effect. Relax, Anna, he said. I only wanted to teach the chap a lesson about the proper care of other people's property. Gramps would start to laugh again until he started to cough, and Toot would mutter under her breath that she was supposed it was a good thing that my father had realized that dropping the pipe had just been an accident, because who knows what could have happened after otherwise. My mother would roll her eyes at me and say that they were exaggerating. Your father can be a bit domineering, my mother would admit with a hint of a smile. But... It's just that he's basically a very honest person. That makes him uncompromising sometimes. She preferred a gentler portrait of my father. She would tell the story of when he arrived to accept the Phi Beta Kappa key in his favorite outfit, jeans and an old knit shirt with a leopard print pattern. Nobody told him it was this big honor. So he walked in and found everyone standing around this elegant room dressed in tuxedos, the only time I ever saw him embarrassed. And Gramps, Gramps suddenly thoughtful, would start nodding to himself. It's a fact bar, he would say. Your dad could handle just about any situation, and that made everybody like him. Remember the time he had to sing at that international music festival? He'd agreed to sing some African songs, but when he arrived, it turned out to be this big to-do, and the woman who performed just before him was a semi-professional singer, a Hawaiian gal with the full band to back her up. Anyone else would have stopped right there, you know, and explained that there had been some big mistake, but not Barack. He got up and started singing in front of this big crowd, which is no easy feat, let me tell you. And he wasn't great, but he was so sure of himself that before you knew it, he was getting as much applause as anybody. My grandfather would shake his head and get out of his chair to flip on the TV set. Now there's something you can't learn from your dad, he would tell me. Confidence, the secret to a man's success. That's all the stories went, compact apocryphal told in rapid succession in the course of one evening then packed away for months sometimes years in the family's memory like the few photographs of my father that remain in the house old black and white studio prints that I might run across while rummaging through the closets in search of Christmas ornaments or an old snorkel set at the point where my own memories began my mother had already begun a courtship with the man who had become her second husband and I sensed without explanation why the photographs had to be stored away. But once in a while, sitting on the floor with my mother, the smell of dust and mothballs rising from the crumbling album, I would stare at my father's likeness, the dark laughing face, the prominent forehead and thick glasses that made him appear older than his years, and listen as the events of his life tumbled into a single narrative. He was an African, I would learn, a Kenyan of the Luo tribe, born on the shores of Lake Victoria in a place called Alego. The village was poor, but his father, my other grandfather, Hussein Onayogo Obama, 
had been a prominent farmer, an elder of the tribe, a medicine man with healing powers. My father grew up herding his father's goats and attending the local schools set up by British colonial administration, where had shown great promise. He eventually won a scholarship to study in Nairobi, and then, on the eve of the Kenyan independence, he had been selected by Kenyan leaders and American sponsors to attend a university in the United States, joining the first large wave of Africans to be sent forth to master Western technology and bring it back to forge a new, modern Africa. In 1959, at the age of 23, he arrived at the University of Hawaii as an institution's first African student. He studied economics, worked with unsurpassed concentration, and graduated in three years at the top of his class. As far as religion, and he helped organize the International Students Association, of which he became the first president. In a Russian language course, he met an awkward, shy American girl, only 18, and they fell in love. The girl's parents, wary at first, were won over by his charm and intellect. The young couple married, and she bore them a son to whom he bequeathed his name. He won another scholarship, this time to pursue his PhD at Harvard, but not the money to take his new family with him. A separation occurred, and he returned to Africa to fulfill his promise to the continent. My mother and child, the mother and child stayed behind, but the bond of love survived the distance. There the album would close, and I would wander off content, swallowed in a tale that placed me in the center of a vast and orderly universe. Even the abridged version that my mother and grandfather offered, there were many things I didn't understand, but I really asked for the details that might resolve the meaning of PhD or colonialism, or locate a Lego on a map. Instead, the path of my father's life occupied the same terrain as a book my mother once bought for me. A book called Origins, a collection of creation tales from around the world, stories of Genesis and the tree where the man was born, Prometheus and the gift of fire, the tortoise of Hindu legend that floated in space, supporting the weight of the world on its back. Later, when I became more familiar with a narrower path to happiness to be found in television and the movies, I became troubled by questions. What supported the tortoise? Why did an omnipresent god let a snake cause such grief? Why did my father return? But at the age of five or six, I was satisfied to leave these distant memories intact, each story self-contained and as true as the next, to be carried off into peaceful dreams. That my father looked nothing like the people around me, that he was black as pitch, my mother white as milk, barely registered in my mind. In fact, I can only recall one story that dealt explicitly with the subject of race. As I got older, it would be repeated more often, as if it captured the essence of the morality tale that my father's life had become. According to the theory from the story, after long hours of study, my father had joined my grandfather and several other friends at a local Waikiki bar. Everyone was in a festive mood, eating and drinking to the sounds of a slack keyed guitar when a white man abruptly announced to the bartender loudly enough for everyone to hear that he shouldn't have to drink good liquor next to a nigger. The room fell quiet and people turned to my father expecting a fight. Instead, my father stood up, walked over to the man, smiled and proceeded to lecture him about the folly of bigotry, the promise of the American dream and the universal rights of man. <laughs> this fella felt so bad when Barack was finished, Gramps would say, that he reached into his pocket and gave Barack $100 on the spot, paid for all our drinks and the poo-poons for the rest of the night and your dad's rent for the rest of the month.
That was Barack Obama's Dreams for My Father, a story of race and inheritance. Thank you so much for listening to First 10 Pages. This is Abendo Books. See you next time. Bye-bye.